So this week was not like a couple of weeks previous. Uh, they missed it that time. By the time they heard the news this time, everything was already in full swing. And they remembered what happened last time. The news got to them, but while they were getting ready, someone else came and said, hey, it's all over, you missed it. Apparently there was this new preacher in town and he was performing miracles. People were getting healed over at uh, Simon Peter's house and there was a giant crowd and they were going out among the little hamlets and bringing people in and, and they heard all about it and by the time they were ready to go, somebody came and said, hey, don't bother, he disappeared. We don't know where he went. We don't know if he's coming back. We don't know when he's coming back. So this time when they heard he was back, when they heard there was more healing going on, when they heard demons were being cast out of people, when they heard amazing things were happening in Capernaum, they didn't waste any time. It, it, was, like a, it was like a circus, four guys running around trying to get everything ready at once, four frantic men and one man just lying perfectly still, not saying anything. He was lying perfectly still because he always lay perfectly still. He couldn't move his arms. He couldn't move his legs. This was his condition. He was dependent upon <clears throat> these friends of his to take care of him. And he was disappointed, to say the least, when he found out that Jesus had left last time. And he was excited this time, but not too excited. He, he had gotten his hopes up before. And after all, th these stories he was hearing, these are crazy stories. And so he wasn't sure what to expect. But just like every other day, he woke up and his first thought was, I still can't move. And he thought maybe, just maybe, this day will be different. Maybe this day his world would change. But he wasn't getting his hopes up because he had been disappointed before. That is the way Mark chapter 2 opens up to us. If you have your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of Mark and join me in chapter 2. We're going to begin at the beginning of Mark chapter 2. As this man's day plays out before our eyes, and we're going to watch and see what happened in his life. Chapter 2, verse 1, Gospel of Mark. When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterwards, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And they came bringing him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak this way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, 
Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, pick up your pallet and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God saying, we've never seen anything like this. And he went out again by the seashore and all the people were coming to him and he was teaching them. You know, usually the cool thing about being the preacher is that you don't have to come to church wondering what the preacher is going to say. You don't, you don't have to come to church kind of with your guard up a little bit thinking, you know, last week he preached a sermon right at me. And, and everything he said was meant at me. I saw the way he kept looking at me. And I know that he was in his office thinking of me when he was preparing this. And now I feel all convicted. See, when you're the preacher, you don't have to worry about that. But today is different. Because this sermon, no matter what you may think, by the end of this sermon, maybe you're sitting there going, wow, this is one of those sermons that was meant just for me. I'm telling you right now, this sermon is not meant just for you. I am not preaching this sermon to you, okay? So take a deep breath, relax. I am not preaching this sermon to you. I am preaching this sermon to us. We've been trying to establish for weeks and weeks now that there's something about being the church that makes us us first. Even before I am me, we are us. And, and we've been trying to establish this idea that somehow our unity in Christ is what makes us a viable um, power in this world in which we live. And so we've been talking about what it means to be us, what it means to be the church. We've been talking about how we're better together, and we've been talking for weeks about it, about being a church that loves God, being a church that loves people, and being a church that changes the world. We, we put that up on our wall, and then we put up banners that say, better together. And the better together banners say, one body, one God, one body, one mission. And... and We've been talking in the early part of this series about this one God and how great it is to be rightly related to the one and only true God and how awesome it is to have our lives focused on Him and not be distracted by the other things of life that tend to, tend to dominate our lives, not just be a part of our lives. And we've been talking about what it is to be one body how we're in this together, how we're unable to live this abundant life that Jesus came to give us, unable to live it by ourselves. We have to live it in community. We have to live it together. And if you're like many Christians, you have probably had those moments in your Christian life, those seasons in your Christian life in which you have gone ahead and tried to see how easy it is to live the Christian life separated from the rest of the body of Christ. And, it, and if you're like most people, you found out that that's a disastrous experiment. And so we've been talking about what it is to be one body, and we've been talking about what it is to have a shared mission, that we are the hands and feet of Christ, 
that, that we, the church, has, has been given by Jesus himself the responsibility to be the light of the world in a world that is otherwise very, very dark. We, we've been told by Jesus that it is our role to be missionaries in a world that is in desperate need of a Savior, to make disciples of all nations. That's our mission. So we have this one God, and He's the power of it all. We are one body. We have to do this together. But what we're doing together, and this is the important part here, what we're doing together is not sitting on the sideline watching a show. What we're doing together is we are walking hand in hand with Jesus in such a way that the world gets transformed through us. That's the world-changing part of it all. But here's the thing. It's one thing to talk about changing the world. But it's quite another thing to get off your backside and do something about it. And, and quite frankly, the American church has become fat and lazy. Now, now, not us, of course. <laughs> I'm not talking about the people in this room. But, but the church in general, that church that we're a part of, is the most overfed church in the history of the world. We are fed and fed and fed and fed and fed. And in the 21st century, we don't even have to come to a building to get fed. All we have to do is punch a button on our phone and we can listen to the greatest preachers and they can exegete the scriptures for us. We have access to, to Bible study tools online for free today that I dreamed about in seminary. And they're just available to everybody today online for free. We are overfed. It's not a problem that we don't have ex access to the Word of God. We have become fat and lazy. The reason that God feeds His church is so that His church will have the necessary strength to go out and be His church. So feeding is not just about, you know, the all-you-can-eat buffet. It's about actually getting out there and exercising our muscles and being the hands and feet of Jesus. And we've been talking about this now for weeks. So today my hope is not to challenge you, but to challenge us to actually get up and start changing the world one person at a time. Because after all, we are in this together. And I heard somewhere somebody said, we're better together. And I really believe that. So if today's message makes you feel uncomfortable, just know I've been uncomfortable with it all week. It's been making me uncomfortable too. If you feel singled out today, don't. This is not one of those messages where God is talking to just you because if just you get it, it doesn't matter. We have to get it. And we have to take it seriously. And we have to do something collectively. So it's not just that you have to do something and you have to do something and you have to do something, but we as the body of Christ need to be made up of a bunch of individuals who are doing something in response to God's calling. We need to hear Him collectively. We need to respond to Him collectively as well as individually. God has called us. God has empowered us. He's gifted us. He has strengthened us. He's commanded us to change the world. 
So if we're going to be world changers, perhaps we should give some thought to what world changers look like. And when I was in Mark this week and and just reading chapter 2, and I saw this picture again of these four men bringing their needy friend to Jesus, I was just struck at how, how, um, what a picture this is of what the church is supposed to be about. And so I I thought, if we're going to think about being world changers... Because from what we just read, that young man, his world got changed that day, amen? I mean, changed forever. His eternity got changed that day. And and if we're going to be world changers, maybe we can take some clues from this picture in Mark chapter 2 of what are the marks of world changers? What do people that God uses to change the world look like? What do they have in common and how could we be those kind of people? So I'm going to give you a bunch of points. Usually I I don't preach multi-point sermons. You're going to get several points. So if you're a um, note taker, now's the time to take notes. Point number one, world changers walk by faith. World changers walk by faith. These guys believed that Jesus could help their friend. There's only one passive person in the entire story. Who is it? This is the paralytic, right? What can he do? He, he is at the mercy of everyone around him. But, but Jesus is active, and certainly these four friends of his are active, and And they obviously believed that Jesus could do something for their friend. I want you to notice again in verse 4. It says, being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. Verse 5. And seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. I love the fact that it doesn't say a word about the faith of the paralytic. I wish we knew his name. I hate calling him the paralytic. But we don't even know his name. We're not not told anything. He has no role in this. He's just a bit actor. He has no lines to learn. He he just shows up. And, And we don't know if he even has any faith. We have no idea whether he trusts in Jesus. So we can't make the mistake of believing that somehow if I have enough faith, I can get God to do what I want God to do. We don't know if this guy has any faith at all. But you know who we know has faith? His four friends. Because his four friends not only pack him up and bring him across town, but when they get there, they have some obstacles to get through and they fight through those obstacles. So, so we know they have faith. And I point this out, guys, because if you're a Christian and you have loved ones who don't know Jesus, if, if there's someone in your family, if there's a significant other in your life, a, a spouse perhaps, or a parent or a child who doesn't have faith, and, and your faith tells you that it's essential for them to have faith. And so you look and you think, they have, they don't, they have no faith, well, what can we do? What, what could possibly be done for them if they don't have faith? Listen, if you have a loved one who doesn't have faith, no problem. You have faith for them. You, you act upon your faith. 
you live your faith. You live their, your faith in front of them. You live your faith with them. You live your faith for them. And you watch what God does in the lives of people who know people who actually live by faith. Because the greatest problem most people of faith, uh, most faithless people have is not that they have a lack of faith. It's that they don't know anybody who has faith. They haven't watched anybody have faith. They don't know what it's like to have faith. So to them, that's just a pipe dream. Now, now let me be absolutely clear here. I preached a whole series maybe a year or two ago on faith. And, and I kept driving this point home. But if you weren't here for that, I need you to know this. When I'm talking about faith, I'm not talking about some mystical power. Faith is not a power. In fact, there's a lot of false teaching these days out there that either comes right out and says it or implies that faith is a power. And therefore, if you have enough faith, if you speak words of faith, if you believe certain things, then those things will come about because God owes that to you because God has to respond to your faith. That is a lie from the pit of hell. God is God and you are not. Amen? Amen. Okay, we can all agree on that. So my faith doesn't make God do anything. But somehow in God's economy, he teaches us that it is in the context of our faith that he loves to operate. Because when he operates in the context of our faith, we notice him. We know it's him. And we understand that it's him. People eat meals every single day and never even stop to realize that God gave them this food. People, people drive safely on Southern California freeways every day. <laughs> never occurs to them that God got them safely from point A to point B. But that doesn't mean it's not the case. And, and faith is not some power, it's not some magic potion. Faith is simply acting on the belief that God is who he says he is and he will do what he says he will do. That's it. It's living your belief system. It's acting on the fact that God is who he says he is and he will do what he says he will do. We cannot make our loved ones come to Jesus. I mean, some of us are thinking, this would be great if I could just get my teenager on a pallet tied to a stretcher and drag them off to Jesus. You know, that would be great, wouldn't it? But we can't make our loved ones come to Jesus. No matter how hard we believe, we cannot make it happen. But we do need to remember that faith by definition doesn't just sit there. Faith does something. Faith is always active. It's never passive. And we've been talking about the one another's of Scripture and how we're called to do this together. We're God's church, right? And we've, uh, we, we have to realize that it is an honor. It, it is an incredible privilege, a blessing to be allowed to bring people to Christ. Do your friends, do your loved ones see your faith? Do they hear about your faith? Are you there for them when they're hurting? That's all good. But here's the deal. As much as we would like to think that our friends and loved ones need us, they don't need us. They need Jesus. 
And sometimes we Christians are so passive in our faith that we are content to allow them to be dependent upon us and we become the Savior in their life and they don't realize they need a Savior. But they don't need you. They need Jesus. And so if you really believe Jesus when he says, I am the way, then the question is, how are you actively living out that faith? Are you sharing the way with your friends who obviously have lost their way? Do you believe Jesus when he says, I'm the truth? Then how are you doing at sharing the truth with loved ones? Because, you know, we're all really uh, content with this whole idea, and, and, and it's not a completely wrong idea. But so many Christians I know are content with this idea that rather than talking about my faith, I'm content to just live out my faith, right? I will live out my faith and let them see a sermon by the way I live, but, but I don't say much about it. Listen, if that's the approach you take, people may be incredibly impressed with you and never know it's Jesus. They, they may never know the truth that we're lost in our sin without Christ, that every one of us is in the same condition, that until we submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and become followers of His, we have no life. They may never know that. And they may just think, you know, I want to practice some of the things I see my friend practicing. And, and they may think, you know, faith is a good thing. But they may never find Jesus. Some of us, frankly, don't talk about our faith enough. And one of the reasons we don't talk about our faith is, A, we don't want to offend anybody. And B, we're afraid that we don't really know what we're talking about. <laughs> right? And, and if, I, <clears throat> if I start to talk about Jesus and somebody says, well, how did Jonah live in a giant fish? I don't know the answer. So rather than bring it up, I just won't talk about it. I want you to leave your finger in Mark 2 because we're coming back there, but I want you to go to the back of your Bible, the book of 1 Peter. And I want you to look with me at 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Here's what Peter says. 1 Peter 3.15, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. I love the way Peter describes this. First of all, he doesn't say, beat your friends over the head with your Bible. With gentleness and reverence. Being ready to give an account to who? To everybody you see on the street? Nope. To anyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is within you. To actually live in relationship with people where they would see the hope that is within you and it would be a natural point of conversation. And then in that natural conversation, you should be ready to give a reasonable um, defense for why you believe what you believe. And, and I'm, I don't want to say this to discourage people and cause you to feel even less um, prepared. Here's what I, I, I want to say. 
If you have a copy of this book, read it. Please. If you don't have a copy of this book, see me afterward and you'll leave here with a copy of this book. I got about 100 copies in my office. I'm happy to give you one. But, but we actually need to understand what the Word says. We need to know the basics of why we believe what we believe. We need to be ready to talk to people because otherwise we're going to have our paralytic friend laying there. We're going to know that Jesus is right over here and we're going to be afraid to pick him up and bring him to Jesus. We have to be ready to speak the truth. You believe Jesus when he says, I am the life, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life then take a step of faith and share Jesus with somebody who is dying to know him. These four guys carried their friend to Jesus. And when they, when they saw that he, he wasn't going to be able to get to Jesus on his own, they took matters into their own hands. Maybe God put these four men, we don't know, are they his brothers are they his friends? Are they co-workers? Is, you know, are they his children, perhaps? We, we don't know what the relationship is. But maybe God placed these four men in the life of this one man for just such a time as this. So that they would be instrumental in bringing him to Jesus. What if they were too passive in their faith? to take that step of faith? What if they were too passive to say to their friend, listen, I know you're laying there, I know you're suffering, I know it's been hard, but I actually have some answer, I can help you, come with me. What if they had been too passive in their faith to bring that up? It would have been easy to just sit around and talk about Jesus with this guy. Isn't it great that Jesus is now, this is a new teacher, I heard he was healing people, isn't that wonderful? They could have done that. But guys, I just can't say it enough ways. Faith is not theoretical. It's never passive. Faith acts. That's why the book is called The Acts of the Apostles. The, the apostles, they were with Jesus. They came to know Jesus. They got filled with the Holy Spirit. And what if the rest of the book said, and therefore they sat around playing pinochle with one another? But they didn't. They acted on their faith. So that's the first point. Second point is this. World changers overcome obstacles. I think this is pretty obvious in our story. Go back to Mark 2. But in our Mark 2 story, I think it's pretty obvious that there were some obstacles that were in the way. I remember reading this story for the first time when I was about 14 or 15 years old, you know, and thinking, this is the coolest story. You know, when you're like a 14-year-old boy, you, you think anything with a lot of noise and damage, you know, is a really cool story. This was like an action movie the way I saw it. Because here's these big burly guys with axes up on top of a roof going, kush, kush, busting through the roof. Now that's how I saw it. In reality, the roof was probably made of some clay material and maybe some, uh, some uh, branches and that sort of thing and some tiles. We know there was some kind of tiles because in Luke's record, he talks about them removing tiles. But the bottom line is, I mean, this blows my mind. This was not their house. 
<laughs> right? I mean, so they get there and they see that there is a, the whole place is full. There's a crowd that's spilled out into the front yard and there's just people surrounding this house, everyone leaning in. And it doesn't even say that Jesus was healing yet at this point. What was he doing? Teaching them the word. This was a Bible study. And Jesus was teaching, but we know that Jesus blew everybody's minds because he taught as one having authority, right? Not as the Pharisees and the scribes. They derived their authority from their title, but the scripture says Jesus taught as one having authority. In other words, when he held the word of God in his hand, he didn't talk about it like it belonged to somebody else. It was his word. He wrote it. And he spoke it with power. And so people showed up when there was a Bible study for Jesus. They didn't have to put it in the bulletin. They didn't have to tweet out to anybody, go, don't forget to come to Bible study. People showed. And Jesus is teaching, and there's people all around leaning up against the house, trying to hear what's going on. And here come these guys, and they see the situation, and they think, what do we do? It was a tough enough job just to bring him there. And then they get there and there's no access to Jesus. It doesn't say how far they traveled. But I could promise you it was not an easy trip. They had to work together to carry their friend to Jesus. But when they got there, they see this huge crowd, verse 4, being unable to get to him because of the crowd. Guys, listen to those words. Some people are unable to get to Jesus. For some people, there are obstacles in their way that they can't see their way through to Jesus. <clears throat> that whatever they've heard about Jesus has just been so much rhetoric. It hasn't meant anything to them because of the pain in their lives, because of the, the lies that they believe, because of the religious system that they're caught up in, whatever. They're having a hard time just getting to Jesus. It says they were unable to get to Jesus. At least that's how Mark says it. Unable. But the four guys did not know from unable. They were not going to settle. So, in, in fact, if you go Luke, uh, again, finger in John, go to Luke, next book to the right, go to Luke. I think it's Luke 5. Um, I probably should have put this in my notes. It would have made life easier. Luke 5. Uh, I thought I had this. Thanks. Luke 5, 17, one day he was teaching and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem and the power of the Lord was present for him uh, to perform healing. And some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed and they were trying to bring him in and to set him down in front of him, but not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd. They went up on the roof and led him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. They couldn't find any way. Mark just says the front door was packed and there was people spilling out. Luke says they couldn't find any way. So apparently they tried to shove their way through the crowd, got nowhere. Apparently they went around to the back to see if they could get in the back door, got nowhere. Apparently they tried to see if his stretcher would fit through one of the windows, not going to happen. And eventually somebody said, there's a ladder, let's go up on the roof. 
And these dudes, like picture this. We don't, I wish we had a picture of the house. Some of these houses had stairs built in that went to a flat roof. Maybe that's what they used. Or maybe they constructed a ladder or broke down tree branches or whatever to climb up onto this roof. Somehow, some way. My point is this. They didn't let the obstacles keep them from bringing their friend to Christ. And I was so convicted when I thought about this. Because you know how many times I've tried to share Jesus with somebody only to run into a roadblock and say, well, I tried. I mean, imagine this story if it said, and when they got there, the crowd was so big that they were unable to get to Jesus. And so they went home and they were sad. But they didn't let the obstacles stop them. I think many of us are are willing to do something to bring our friends to Jesus. But when the going gets tough, what happens to us? You invite somebody to church and they say, oh, no thanks. So you never bring it up again. You you start sharing something about your testimony with the Lord and they don't seem to get it and they don't seem very interested, so you make a mental note not to bring it up again because that was an awkward moment. You went down to the local youth center to see if they needed any volunteers and they handed you a stack of paperwork to fill out and you said, whatever, and you never went back. You got excited about some new idea for ministry and you try to get some of your fellow believers to jump in and help you start something, but nobody else got excited like you did, so you put it away. You went up on a retreat with the church and man, it was just amazing. You get away from all the cares in the valley. You go up on the mountain and you just see God so clearly and you're like, yes, now I understand what my life's about. I got to live for Jesus. And no sooner are you halfway down the mountain at the end of the retreat than the cares of this world have come crashing back in around you and you have forgotten about your new resolve to live for Jesus. You try to live a transformed life before the eyes of your loved ones and they never seem interested in what Christ is doing in you. So you just never say anything about it. Most of us would rather let our lives do the talking, but our mouths never do the talking. And so they don't hear. If we're going to be used by God to change the world, we're going to face obstacles. We have to remember the mission that God gave us. And realize that we're going to face obstacles. Sometimes those obstacles are God's way of redirecting you. Sometimes God will close a door to redirect you in another direction. That's what happens sometimes. But in my experience, by reading the scripture and walking with Jesus for these something years, what I found is that a lot of time a closed door is nothing but an obstacle to cause you to step back and pull in closer to Jesus and realize that you need him to do it and not you. Sometimes I think we give up too easy. I wonder who God has placed in your life who needs you to help him find a clear path to Jesus, whatever that might cost. The third observation I have for you today from this story may seem absolutely obvious, but it's super important, so I'm going to give it to you. World changers change the world together. Just underline together. One guy would not have been able to carry this guy. 
One guy would have never got that stretcher up the side of the house. One guy would have never been able to get a hole cut in that roof. One guy would have never been able to lower him down safely into the crowd right in front of Jesus. This was not a one-man job. And you know what? Nothing in your walk with Christ is a one-man job. I've said it a hundred times from a hundred different directions, but it took all of them working together. These guys are heroes. These guys are world changers. And guess what? We don't even know their names. We don't get to name churches after them. We don't get to write books and biographies about them. We don't even know their names. But they changed the world. It wasn't about them. It was about Jesus. And I guess to a lesser degree, it was about their friend. But Jesus saw their faith, and in response to their faith, Jesus changed the world through them. Now, you may say, now you're getting preachy. You sound like you're expanding this a little bit. You're saying he changed the world. He just changed one guy's life. Now, that's a big deal, and I know there's a butterfly effect and all of that. He changed one guy's life. This is not like these guys are so heroic. Guys, you don't know what God's going to do through you. You have no idea. Jesus did change the world through these four guys. And that's the fourth point. World changers are used by God in bigger ways than they know. Bigger ways than they know. Go back where Mark 2 now. Pick it up in verse 5. Jesus, seeing their face, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Remember in Luke's uh, gospel, he said, the Pharisees and the scribes were all throughout the crowd. The scribes, the scribes are the, you know, the lawyers in the group. And the scribes began to have a problem with what he was saying. It says, um, some of the scribes, verse 6, were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And guys, they were right. You cannot, in Jewish life, claim to have the power to forgive someone's sins. Only God can forgive sins. And so they had a right to be offended if, because they didn't know. Verse 8 Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning this way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk, but so that you, you may know that the Son of Man, that's Jesus, has the authority on earth to forgive sins. So if they were wondering, does this guy think he has the authority to forgive sins? He cleared it up. He said... I have the authority to forgive sins. So when he said that, what was he saying? I am God. Not I'm a prophet, not I'm a healer, not I'm a rabbi, not I'm a pastor. I am God. And, and so he claims the authority to forgive sins. And he said to the paralytic, um, I say to you, Get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed. We're glorifying God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. This is the first time in Mark's gospel that Jesus makes any claim to be God. 
And what was the context in which he did it? There was these four guys, and they brought their crippled friend, and an uproar became, came out of that. The scribes got upset. Jesus claimed to be God. The scribes became more upset. As we read on, we find out. And eventually, they nailed him to a cross for it. This is why Jesus was crucified. This is the charge against him. He claimed to be God. And for that, they crucified him. And because they crucified him, you and I can walk in freedom from our sins today. Now, you're going to tell me these four guys are not world changers? Do you see? Do you see what God can do when we just take that step of faith together and we make it about God and not us? Guys, God doesn't work in a vacuum. He knows what he's doing. And when he prompts you to get up and do something, you never know what he's going to, go, what he's going to do through you to change the world. So isn't it about time that we started acting like the church? Isn't it about time that we collectively got up off our padded seats and started acting like we believe what we say we believe? Oh, there's one last point before we let you go. World changers don't change the world. Jesus does. So don't get me wrong. This is not about making a plan and it's a great plan and therefore you did what you set out to do. What this is is about the fact that God already has a plan. God already has the power. God already has a way. God has already won the battle. God has already won the war. God is already doing something. And he says to his family, the church, come with me while I do what only I can do. So as much as these four guys are heroes, the real hero of the story is always Jesus. When David slays Goliath, who's the hero? Jesus. When Noah survives the flood, who's the hero? Jesus. When Moses parts the Red Sea, who's the hero? Jesus. Jesus is always the hero. These guys did something heroic by walking in faith, but Jesus is the one who changed this man's life and in so doing changed the world. Only Jesus can do these things. This man's friends only carried him to Jesus. That was their role. And that's all we can do. But the good news is Jesus isn't asking us to change the world. He's asking us to join him so that he can change the world through us. He's asking us to move our focus off of things like our jobs our relationships, our health, our finances. And not to remove those things from our lives, but to say, no, 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 Jesus is the center and all of those things are just spokes that come off the hub. And he's calling us to make our lives so much about him that it will be normal and common that somehow through people like us, God changes the world. So what are we waiting for, church? 
That there, there, there is a broken, hurting, dying world out there. And God has chosen to use us. Not me. Not you. Us. To change that world. That's what you're invited to today. And when we walk through those doors and we walk out of the air conditioning and our comfort level drops automatically, it's okay. Because God didn't call us to be comfortable. He called us to go where He goes, do what He does, say what He says, love who He loves. That's our calling. And we're called to it together. Let's stand and pray. Father, we, we are here. We are collectively aware of our desperate need for you. For, for apart from you, we don't even breathe. For apart from you, we don't even think. For apart from you, we don't walk, talk, have anything to add to the equation. It's all because of you. And Father, we know that what you've done in us, you could do through us. And so we pray, Father, you would help us to link arms. We pray that you would help us to, to have faith. We pray that you would help us to not give up when we bump into obstacles. We pray you would help us to work together. We pray you would help us to trust you to do what only you can do, even when we don't understand it. God, we ask you, give us the privilege. Change the world through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.